I'm Steve Sprovac, and welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week, we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. The Delta variant is spreading, and businesses are preparing. Andy Schaefer, a chartered financial consultant at Allworth Financial and a regular on Simply Money, joins me to discuss how local businesses are preparing for another COVID surge. Brian James, a CFP on the Allworth team, comes on to talk about the human reasons why Wall Street stock pickers often can't beat the market and how the actor Steven Seagal got roped into a cryptocurrency scam. It's a wild story you won't want to miss. Finally, I interview Marshall Allen, author of Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win, about some actionable ways that you can lower your medical bills. Businesses are gearing up for the Delta variant, and these changes could affect your salary. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Steve Sprovac. The Delta variant is dominating the headlines again. Businesses are gearing up for more changes. So why aren't you seeing this anxiety grip the market yet? Joining us tonight is Andy Schaefer, chartered financial consultant on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Andy, I mean, the the headlines are screaming uh, watch out for this Delta variant. We've got to mask up again, yet markets are reaching new highs. What's going on? Well, first of all, it's crazy that we're still dealing with this. You know, I, I can remember when we started closing up shop back in March of last year and, yeah. and talking with Amy Wagner. And at the time, Amy was thinking, man, this could go on for a while. I said, you know what? We'll probably be back in the office in a few months. But <laughs> but that's not how it turned yeah. out. So, you know, it seems like we're going to be dealing with this to some degree for quite a while. Um, I think you know, part of the reason there's not a lot of widespread worry from an economic standpoint is that, you know, we're seeing a lot of people that are vaccinated have very limited limited symptoms if they do attract the Delta variant. Um, I heard Dr. Fauci say the other day that it doesn't seem likely that we are headed towards a shutdown. We have reached our 70% COVID vaccine milestone, according to the CDC. Um, so overall, you know, we're starting to see some trends change a little bit as far as masks are concerned, but it doesn't look like it's going to upset the economy or hurt consumer spending. At well, this and I, I think that's the key. Earnings are strong. I, I, I mean, that, that's that's the key with the stock market is, you know, in real estate, it's location, location, location. In the stock market, it's earnings, earnings, earnings. And, and we're right in the middle of getting uh, second quarter earnings um, so far. 89% higher earnings year over year. I mean, we expected, yeah, a year ago uh, a year ago was the lockdown. So you'd expect earnings to be better, but 89% stronger. I, I mean, those are big numbers. They're huge numbers, and I think there's a lot of savings fatigue for a lot of people. You know, I, I talked to a lot of individuals last year that might have been taking regular distributions prior to the pandemic that said, you know what, there's really not a whole lot for me to spend my money on right now. And their cash reserves continued to build and continue to build. They had... Uh, trips that were planned that got pushed back. Um, they weren't able to go to the malls. You know, Simon Property Group owns Cincinnati Premium Outlet up in Monroe. It's one of the u- largest U.S. mall owners in the United States, and they said that their their centers are back to pre-pandemic levels and up 80% from a year earlier. So yeah. in spite of a lot of these things that have gone on, we're con- continuing to see consumer spending um, increase, which translates to obviously positive earnings and uh, ultimately growth for the United States. Yeah, and, and, and consumers, you know, consumer spending is 70% Everything. of the uh, economy. Right. So when consumers, and I'm doing my part, I don't know about <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, I but too. When, when, when consumers spend, it buoys the economy. I mean, we had some GDP numbers, gross domestic product numbers, come out a couple of days ago that were, you know, a surprising miss. Well, I, I think the reason that the market didn't take it negatively is because 
the consumer spending numbers were actually up as strong as they were. They were up 12 percent over over uh, a year ago. So we're, we're doing our part. And, and that's such a key. It's not all roses. I, I mean, there, there's some negatives out there. Uh, drug maker Eli Lilly had a rare. I mean, this is a very rare earnings miss. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons that, that they had an earnings miss was, yeah, they're, they're, they've got an antibody cocktail that unfortunately was put on pause by U.S. health officials in June because it proved to be, not, at least at this point, not effective against variants that were first identified in Brazil and South Africa. I mean, this is a big employer. They've got 11,000 employees at its headquarters in, in Indian, Indianapolis, and I, I've been uh, at their campus. It, it's spectacular. It's a great company. Uh, it I went, is, yeah. I, I went to college in Indiana, and I yeah. had a lot of my friends work for Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly's not going anywhere, but this just goes to show you that, you know, regardless of how – um, uh, how good a company is or how well positioned they are, there can be mistakes that are made and that can hurt individual stock prices. And once again, we go back to making sure you have a, a diversified uh, approach to your investing. And this is one good example of that. But overall, what we're seeing is that you know, there is slack in the labor market. There are jobs available. People are out there, um, you know, have, have, have decisions and options to make as well. Um, you know, what we're seeing now is that you know, there are opportunities for a lot of employees that are better than the ones that they have. And I remember, you know, Nathan and Ed back in the day, they used to love the, the jolts um, yeah. statistic. Yeah. They used to call it the, the take this take this job and shove it model. And what right. they said right. was is that was an indication of people leaving one job for another job. And what we're finding is is that there are a lot of opportunities out there. And in a lot of cases, there are better opportunities for people. So with the labor slack that's available for employees and the continued stimulus that keeps uh, being rolled out to, in the economy – we're going to continue to see consumer spending uh, continue to thrive and ultimately translate to higher equity prices. Well, and 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 I, I think you're right on on the money with, with that. But you know, my concern is still. I, I'm personally, I'm not real worried about the Delta variant. I, I'm vaccinated, but if enough people say, you know what, this scares me, I'm just going to stay in. I won't go out to eat this week or next week. That that to me is a big concern, and that's that's what I'm keeping an eye on because when consumers are cautious about. Uh, spending again, that can cause problems for small businesses right across the board. So, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, and we're we're talking about uh, markets reaching new highs and strong earnings, um, but everything's not real rosy out there. Uh, Andy, um, businesses are starting to talk again about well, maybe you should stay home and work remotely. And if you are in the office, maybe you should wear a mask. I mean, we're, we're taking a step backwards and, 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 you know, legitimately for concern of, of unvaccinated people or, or people just getting this Delta variant. But um, it, it seems like we're, we're not moving forward at this point. I do see a silver lining to that. It yeah. seems to me that it's more of a decision from a private standpoint, meaning Business owners are making the decision as opposed to the federal government on what they're going to require from their employees. Um, you know, in this in, in, in Cincinnati area alone, you know, Kroger's now strongly encouraging all individuals, including including those who are vaccinated, to wear a mask when in its stores and facilities. And previously, they had required um, unvaccinated employees to wear a mask and requested that unvaccinated shoppers do the same. You know, even with our own firm, Allworth Financial, you know, we are strongly encouraged to wear masks um, if interacting with with clients and things like that. Now, um, you know, that's an encouragement that we are receiving from our headquarters, but I think it's up to the employer at this point. You know, yeah. Walmart says that it's requiring all its workers, even the vaccinated ones, yeah. to wear a mask in all areas with high COVID-infected rates. So there is a difference of, uh, I think, of the origin of these requirements, meaning that coming from the companies themselves as opposed to the government. 
But, you know, for me, you know, I am vaccinated. I hate wearing the mask. Yeah. Uh, but I do it out of respect for people that I'm encountering as well. It doesn't seem to be uh, having and impeding upon the amount of clients of mine that want to come in the office. But I'm continuing to monitor that, too, to see if, you know, the personal attitudes change with people that I interact with daily. Well, yeah, I, I was just up in Michigan uh, over the weekend visiting kids and grandkids. And, and, you know, Michigan's a little bit different. I mean, they're they're kind of the California, the Midwest when it when it comes to mask mandates and all that sort of thing. And it was it was kind of getting crazy up there. People it was almost back in the middle of the lockdown with mask wearing. I'm seeing kids and parents in restaurants all wearing masks. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, th- this one drives me crazy. People wearing masks by themselves, driving a car yeah. with the windows rolled yeah, up. I see that I, 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 no matter how cautious you are, I don't really get that one. But, you know, I, I, think, I, I think a lot of employers are struggling with it because, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's labor law involved in what they can require and what they can't. But, you know, you are starting to see some employers mandate, and, and that would be, you know, federal and, and state governments. I, New York's City just said uh, masks for indoor dining. Yeah, this yeah. morning, right? Yeah, so you know that that concerns me a little bit. And is it going to cause the economy to slow down a little bit? I, right, right here locally, Miami University. The friend of mine calls it the Harvard of the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, he probably because, went there, right? Because he went right. there exactly. But the Brick Street, uh, uh, Brick Street Bar uh, in Oxford, mm-hmm. they're requiring an ID and either proof of at least one dose of the vaccine, negative test within 72 hours of when you're in there. Yeah, that's going to happen. Uh, or evidence of a positive antibody test. I'm wondering what kind of pushback they get. I don't see that expanding. Do you? No, I don't see that expanding too much. And I think, once again, it, it's it's going to be up to the business owners how they want to treat it. Um, I would imagine most of the students at Miami are vaccinated, so that probably won't be a problem. Yeah. But, you know, I think we're starting to see, you know, some of these decisions trickle down to our overall greater society, what we think about how we're going to interact in the workplace. You know, one per, one of the permanent changes that may, may be at play is how you think about work. When we said that, you know, we found that 65% of American workers have said their jobs could be done entirely remotely are willing to take a pay cut of 5% to stay home. And, 17, and 15% of those respondents said they would be willing to save off 25% of their salary to re, be remote. Now, to me, that's crazy. But then yeah. again, I don't mind being in the office. I kind of like being here. So I like the hybrid, but it just goes to show you that our society is changing. People like the flexibility. Um, and I think, you know, this, this pandemic has changed the way we do business forever. Well, and you mentioned the, the, the jolts rate, the take this job and, and shove it uh, index. And, and you know, we're looking at record high rates of job quitting. And I was just reading in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, it's causing a problem. I, I mean, you see the now hiring signs all over the place. And, and um, OK, Chipotle is one example where they're paying their workers, uh, new workers, 15 bucks an hour. That's up about two bucks. But I saw a, White Castle had a sign for $18 an hour to work there. Is that know? where you went on your break the other <laughs> yeah, day? Yeah, Checking that out? I love White Castle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but no, it, it, and it's not just, you know, the, that type of job, but, you know, even in manufacturing there's a, a serious shortage of workers out there, and it's creating a problem because these companies are offering more money to new hires than they are existing workers. So I, I know there, there are a number of companies um, uh, that are increasing bonuses. They're giving retention bonuses to their workers so that they don't quit because, you know, it, it doesn't help to hire somebody new and have somebody who's been with you two, three, four years, walk out the door because they're going to be a new hire somewhere else and make more money. I saw Amazon sign on the billboard the other day when I was coming from Kentucky into Cincinnati, and it yeah. said they're, they have a signing bonus of 1000 bucks 
Crazy. You know, for, but I'm sure there's some stipulations involved there where you might have to be there for six months or a year before you receive it. But the point is, is that uh, employers are competing over employees, and that's going to continue to cause wages to raise. Well, exactly. I mean, that's that's the the big uh, big concern is yeah, we're watching this Delta variant, but we're also watching inflation. And when you have to pay workers more money. Um, that gets passed along. And Chipotle is a great exa- example. They they had to increase wages um, at about two bucks an hour across the board is what it seems to be boiling down to. So they've raised their prices three and a half to four percent. So you know, right now the Federal Reserve, our nation's bank, is saying inflation is transitory. It's going to settle down. We'll see. I mean, I'm I'm watching that pretty darn closely because it, you know you're not going to pay somebody a higher wage right now and then say, okay, we're through this, so I, I'm going to drop your wages back <laughs> yeah. down. I, I mean, they're there uh, to stay. Here's the, the Simply Money point. The Delta variant isn't rattling markets right now, but the long pandemic is changing how you work and get a raise. Wall Street stock pickers, they get paid a lot of money to beat the market. So why can't many of them do it? Joining me now is Brian James, a CFP on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Brian, this is interesting. We, we had a couple of buddies that, that are from MIT and University of Chicago decide, let's really analyze the data out there and see how many of these top money managers actually beat the market. And, and their, their uh, conclusions are interesting. Yeah, so uh, economists were looking at uh, the portfolio on 783 uh, money managers who were who were well known people and you know known to known to do pretty well from January of 2000 to March of 2016. So this is a long time frame. If you think of those 16 years, that includes some of the best and the worst years we've ever had. So I think it's a good that's a good yeah, uh, a good swath sample. of time yeah. there. So uh, these portfolios average around 600 million. What they found was that you know looking at the stocks they chose to buy. Uh, the ones that they chose to buy outperformed by about 1.2 percentage points. Now these are gross figures, and you got to figure out you got to figure that these people are charging a fee for their services. That's a business they're running. It's got to it's got to cover its expenses. So that 1.2 percentage points probably just about covered the fees. Otherwise, they're keeping up with the market. Well, and and I, I think you touched on something pretty important. First of all, they're they're buying individual stocks, which is a whole different ballgame from exchange traded funds and and mutual funds. These are the funds buying individual stocks. That are being analyzed, and actually, one point two percent, I think, is pretty darn good. I, I, I mean, that should eat up most of their fees, and, and um, that is an outperformance. Here's the problem: you don't just buy a stock. At some point, you sell a stock, and, and that's where they they found the issues. Paper gains are just that until you pull the trigger and sell, right? So, what they, the next part of this study was, they simply looked at, okay, what if we looked at this random pile of stocks? We know what these guys bought and when they bought it. What if we simply figuratively put a monkey in a, in a room with darts to throw and, and determine what we're going to sell? If we just randomly selected sales without any rhyme or reason, what would have happened? And the answer was they would have gotten an extra 0.8 percentage points per year. So it's one thing to buy a stock because of a good, or because of a good story or good fundamentals or technical, whatever you're looking at. But it's another thing to figure out when you want to get out of that. Well, and, and I think that's the key is it, it, there's two parts to the decision, when to buy and when to sell. And anytime you're convinced that you should buy a particular stock, there is somebody, and you, you forget about this, there is somebody on the other side selling you the stock that is just as convinced it's time to get the heck out. And only one person's going to be right on that. I, I think also emotionally, you know, we want to be winners. We want to buy something that goes up. And once, you know, you're starting to think about selling it, now it's a different ball game, and, and you've really, and something that I, I got out of this study, you've got to constantly uh, ask yourself, 
would I buy the stock today if I did not own it already? And and that's that's the sell decision. Yeah, and, and, and the the other thing people keep in the back of their minds makes it tough to make that decision is that over the long haul, the market goes up, not down. Yeah, the downsides are short and they're panicky and they're crazy, but they're usually over pretty quickly. We saw that a year and a half ago when we first learned about COVID. So it is tough to say, you know what, I'm going to dump this Procter and Gamble or the Facebook, or these companies are going to exist on into the future. And generally speaking, markets go up and companies are generally not going poof overnight. It does happen, but it's tough to pull the trigger. The sell side is the hard part of that decision. And and we're talking about stocks that are moving up and and are making you money. That's not always the case. I I, I mean, sometimes you'll buy something that goes down, and and it's tough to admit defeat. And it it, it just makes it really tough to let go. I'm sure you've run across this over the years as I have. I, I mean, how many times have I heard from somebody, yeah, I bought this stock. It seemed like a good idea at the time. As soon as it goes back up to what I paid for it, I'm going to sell. And, and, you know, the bottom line is Wall Street doesn't care what you paid for the stock. Yeah, you know, so it's tough to let go of a loser, and you always want to stay optimistic. Well, it'll go back up, and when it goes back up, that's when I'll sell. And if you're lucky enough and it does start going back up, you say, well, maybe it will go back to what I paid for it, and, and you get stuck holding the same dogs. This is why we preach diversification. Yeah. Just own a whole bunch of different things. That way you know that for sure— Something in that portfolio is about to go bankrupt. Something else is about to invent the next iPhone. And then there's thousands of companies at some stage in between. Well, and and this is a good reason why you and I, we don't, like individual stocks, and, and we've always talked about it on, on the show, no more than 10% of your money should be in individual stocks because of the inherent lack of diversification. It, it, you know, it, 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 we'll, we'll get back into the emotions of investing it, it, at some point, but I, I think the key is constantly reevaluate your decisions on why you bought an investment. If, though, if, those, uh, this, if that decision is not... Uh, I would still buy the stock today, then maybe you should consider selling it. So always take a fresh look at why I bought it. Are those reasons still valid? And if they're not, maybe you should think about this is the time to sell. Here's a Simply Money point. A solid investment plan will prevent you from making emotional mistakes with your money. If you can't trust Steven Seagal, then who can you trust? The actor, martial arts instructor, deputy sheriff, Zen master, you name it. He's he's done it. And I'll add poor man's Chuck Norris. Um, and that wasn't nice, but that's OK. He was in Under Siege in a whole bunch of 70s and 80s movies. He is involved in an alleged cryptocurrency scam. This is a big one. Joining me now is Brian James, a CFP on the Allworth team and a regular on Simply Money. Um, Brian, it had to happen sooner or later. I mean, we've talked about Bitcoin. We've talked about other cryptocurrencies. And there's more than a couple of them that there are question marks around. This looks like a pretty decent, uh, decent-sized scam, doesn't it? New formula to an old scam. This, uh, the, yep. the new part of this is let's do it with social media. But all we're trying to do here is let's get a bunch of people excited about something that really has uh, little to no value. And nowadays, it used to be that uh, you'd have a bunch of guys sitting in a boiler room making phone calls to uh, susceptible people. Nowadays, you can simply get a B-list actor who maybe uh, doesn't have a whole lot to risk because his or her acting career is kind of sort of over. Uh, but has a bunch of followers on social media. If you can get them excited about something, then you can move you can uh, move mountains here. So what happened was 500 investors put $11 million into a crypto mining operation. This is where someone purportedly has a bunch of computers in a room that are creating cryptocurrency out of thin air. The promise was 200% gains within 60 to 90 days. And that's good enough 
for people to say, hey, Steven Seagal said it. that got to be good enough for me. Yeah, well, they he made some money on this deal. He was promised $250,000 of hard currency plus $750,000 of, of this uh, of this B2G coin that, that he was touting. And, and um, yeah, it, it looks pretty much like a scam. And, and the problem for Mr. Seagal is he did not disclose to his 7 million followers, it's a lot of followers, that he was being paid to tout this cryptocurrency. Correct. And they declared this a security. So what that, yeah. that's a huge yeah. difference. That means it's just like a stock, you know, which means puts it under the, uh, the, the regulator's eye uh, as a security. So the SEC pays attention to these things. So he did get fined about 300000 which is more than what he was supposed to have gotten paid, the 250000 which he didn't receive in the he first place. He didn't get. Place. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. The scammers didn't pay out. Exactly. Uh, so he, cryptocurrency is the Wild West right now. This is why the party's going to end eventually, because wherever you have no raw, no laws, no regs, you get scammers. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened here. Well, and that's going to change. I just read in today's Wall Street Journal, yeah, regulators are asking for, for some more laws that have some teeth on cryptocurrencies and investors are still hurting yeah they've recovered some of this money but there's still about four million dollars missing and totally unaccounted for you've been listening to simply money on 55 krc the talk station joining me tonight is marshall allen author of never pay the first bill and other ways to fight the health care system and win he spent more than 15 years investigating the health care system, and you can find his book on Amazon. Marshall, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here today. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is a subject near and dear to me. Every, everybody's gone through billing problems in the health care system. Tell, tell me what got you started in, on the subject. Well, I really got started with this as an investigative journalist covering health care from the point of view of patients. And as soon as I started writing stories about all the financial harm that our healthcare system is causing to patients, I started getting, start getting inundated with phone calls and emails from patients who were being taken advantage of by the healthcare system. So as I dug into this problem, I found that it's even more um, absurd and unjustified than you would ever think. I mean, Americans say year after year that the high cost of health care is their number one financial concern. But what most people don't realize is that the high cost of health care in this country is entirely unjustified. It's caused by a lot of wasted health care spending, a lot of inefficiencies in our system, and a lot of schemes that have been, frankly, created by the health care industry to take our money. And these things, if we could weed out the schemes and weed out the waste, we could cut our health care spending by about 25 percent, reduce our premiums, reduce our deductibles, reduce what we're spending. And so my book is really a guide to show individuals and employers how to do that, how to save money on health care. It's like a how-to guide for hacking the health care system. So, so what you're saying is some of these billing errors, they're, they're not just honest mistakes, that, that maybe this is a way that hospitals and other organizations make more money intentionally. That's right. I mean, there are a lot of schemes that the industry has created. Think about it. Just think about the fact that we can't get prices before we undergo a health care. That's procedure. the one that amazes me. Yeah. Now, that right there is quite deceptive when you think about it. What other enterprise in our country do we have when we go to a restaurant or a grocery store or you go buy a car 
any consumer transaction where we are paying our money, we get a price up front. The healthcare industry has not made that possible for us. And even now there's the federal hospital price transparency rule that went into effect on January 1st of this year, where hospitals are now required to post their prices, their negotiated insurance prices for all the different procedures that they provide. So now they're supposed to post those prices, and many hospitals are not even complying, even though it's a federal rule. Well, it, it, it's ridiculous. I, I mean, if I go in and I need brakes on my car, I know what the cost of labor is at, at the place uh, that, that I take the car to. I'm going to get an estimate before they, they do any work. And that's that's not being done in the healthcare industry. I was in the hospital in, in December, and when you're on your back, you're not in a good negotiating position. So, you know, why why will not why will healthcare not adopt similar procedures to you know car maintenance? Well, I think when when we have seen these prices, which now we are seeing them because of the hospital price transparency rule, we're seeing vastly different negotiated rates in hospitals for the same services just based on someone's type of insurance that they're covered by. So in my book, I talk about how Medicare typically gets the best rates. That's because the federal government actually sets its own prices. But if you're a working American, you're going to be paying anywhere from two times to five times, even 10 times more than a Medicare patient for the exact same services. So, again, think about your brake um, analogy, right? If you went to get your brakes done and you're a Medicare patient, you might pay $200. But if you're a working American who's not on Medicare, your mechanic might charge $400, even $1,000 for that same brake job for no reason other than the type of coverage that a patient has. And I think this is one of the fundamental unfairness injustices that's built into our healthcare system. Why should one patient have to pay more than another patient for the exact same services at the exact same hospital? It makes absolutely no sense. And that type of pricing variation is throughout our healthcare system. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how do you identify a lower priced medical provider compared to a higher priced? Well, one, one way, let's say you need an MRI scan or a CT scan, Studies have shown over and over again that the hospital is by far the most expensive place to get an imaging test done. I've talked to a patient who saved thousands of dollars on his MRIs just by going to an independent imaging center that was not affiliated with a hospital compared to going to a hospital center. Now, you would never know that, right? But that's a really important hack that can save a patient thousands of dollars for the exact same MRI that they need. We, we, we just learned this a couple of weeks ago. My wife had to go in for a scan in the hospital. I, I think the difference was about $1,200 between the hospital and, and an independent. I, I mean, that's, that's significant that's incredible. for the exact same scan. Well, g- give me an example or two. What, what's the most egregious billing errors that you've seen? Well, I'll give you an example, again, of outrageous pricing. I recently talked to a patient who had to go into the hospital for an emergency room visit. She just had three um, stitches put in her finger. It was a very small little cut in her finger. When she looked on the hospital website, because they were complying with the hospital price transparency rule, so we could look on the hospital website and see that her United Healthcare plan had negotiated a price, a discounted price of $5,805 for that emergency room visit. 
Meanwhile, at the same hospital, the Blue Cross price was about $767. The Medicare price was $230. (laughs) And the cash price, if she had no insurance, was $256. Unbelievable. So in other words, just because she had United Healthcare, she was being billed 22 times the cash price. And this is legal. That, 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 that's amazing. All right. So let's let's say you've gotten to the point, you've, you've had the procedure, it cost what it cost, and you get the bill and it's outrageous. What, what can an average person do to lower the bill? Well, here's what everybody should do. I called the book Never Pay the First Bill, not saying never pay the bill, right? But right. never pay the first bill until you have analyzed it to make sure, number one, it's accurate, and number two, it's fairly priced. So how do you do that? Well, the first step is get an itemized medical bill. Make sure that your bill contains all the individual charges laid out so that you can see that each thing that you're being charged for is something that was actually done. When I talk to experts who review medical bills for a living, they say that most of them contain some type of error or overcharge on it. So it is certainly worth your while to get that itemized bill Make sure you're only being billed for things that actually happened. Number two, when you get that itemized bill, make sure you get the billing codes. And you can get those from your insurance company or the hospital if the hospital won't give them to you. Get those billing codes, and you can look them up in, on a website called healthconsumer.org. Go to that site and look at the prices because on that website, they show you the average amount insurance companies pay in your community for that same type of service. So you can see if you got a colonoscopy and your bill is $5,000 and the average rate for insurance plans in your, in your zip code is $3,000, well, then you can see, you can get an estimate there and see that you're being overcharged by about $2,000. You can also now look on hospital websites. Like I said, they're required by the federal government to post their prices. If they don't make it easy to find, call the hospital and ask where they have posted this. And if they haven't posted it, then they are in violation of the federal government's rule. So we have a right to ask for this because they're required to provide it. Once you look on that hospital website, again, you can see what do they charge Medicare for that colonoscopy? What do they charge other insurance plans? Is the price they're giving you in alignment with what they're charging everyone else? And if it's not, then I say that you should contest that bill. Again, there's no reason it's not right to make one patient pay more than another just because of their insurance coverage. And so in the book, I show people how to do this, even to the extent if you take these steps, you've gathered the evidence you need to file a lawsuit against the hospital in small claims court. And I think this is a game changer because our country has created the small claims court system so that individual consumers can stand up to powerful companies and individuals who are taking advantage of them financially. So if you sue them for that amount that they're overcharging you or for the inaccurate bill, well, what it does is it creates the incentive for them to come to the table and give you a fair price. Another thing a lot of patients don't understand is that everything is negotiable. They're making up these prices to begin with. There are no solid prices, and there are contract law rules in our country that say if they don't give you a price up front, it's assumed that it's going to be a fair price set in good faith. So So if they don't give you that price up front, it has to be a fair price. And if it's not, you can sue them and get recourse in small claims court.
So don't be afraid to call after getting your bill and negotiate. Good advice from Marshall Allen, author of Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Health Care System and When. You can find his book on Amazon and learn more about him at MarshallAllen.com. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. And if you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it too. At Allworth Financial, we help you retire better. 